Spring turkey season is upon us, and don't be caught out in the woods without having Onyx Hunt on your phone. One feature Onyx has that is often overlooked for turkey hunting is their recent imagery filter with their elite memberships. This imagery is updated week to week, and it comes in extremely handy, especially when you're trying to find these gobble zones where these turkeys will go out in a high spot on a fresh clear cut and strut around all day long. Actually, I was just looking at on Onyx where, where the timber company just came into Andrew's club and did a very small clear cut along this creek, and I can see the high spots on the topographical map, but also I can see exactly where they mulch, and those are going to be hot spots for finding gobblers, especially mid-morning after they get off their hens, getting up on these little high spots in this fresh, small clear cut along the creek and strutting and gobbling all day long. If you want to give Onyx a try, you can actually download it for free, try it for seven days, and if you decide to purchase, you can use the promo code SOUTHERN and save on your premium and elite memberships. So go into this turkey season, know where you stand with Onyx. Well, guys, we have some exciting news for you from Vortex about their brand new eyewear, their Banshee and Jackal sunglasses. Me and Andrew have had these for a few weeks now, right before the release, and we've been extremely impressed. They're awesome glasses, guys. And listen, if you're needing some new sunglasses, not only do they have the VIP warranty, but they're tough as crap, guys. Uh, Scratch-resistant eyewear, uh, it's extremely important. And also, they have safety features as well. So when you're out shooting at the range, again, these are rated glasses, so you are going to be more than protected when you're at the range. But they also look fantastic when you're out around town. So right now, Vortex has some special pricing on their website, which is vortexoptics.com for the new eyewear. But also, if you use the code SOUTHERN20, you get to save even more on this special pricing for right now at vortexoptics.com. Again, check out the new eyewear from vortexoptics.com and use the promo code SOUTHERN20 to save on their brand new eyewear. If you live in the Gulf Coast region, you need to find yourself at the EcoWild Expo May 10th through the 12th in Mobile. It is the premier outdoor expo for the Gulf Coast region, and we're going to be there. We're going to have a booth. We're super excited about it. Can't wait to meet you guys that live down there. We absolutely love the Gulf Coast region, so to be a part of this show, we're super excited about. We're going to have past podcast guests there at our booth for you to talk to, guys who are relevant for your area, who you can talk to, you can pick their brain, you can joke with them, laugh with them, tell them your story, whatever you want to do. It's going to be a awesome time. We're already working on some past podcast guests, but hey, if you live in this area and you have a suggestion for someone you want to see at that show, write in and we'll see if we can get them. There's going to be all kinds of exhibitors at the show that are focused on hunting, fishing, conservation, and recreation. There's going to be activities for the whole family there. They got axe throwing, archery. They're going to have our podcast booth. And then for the kids, they got touch tanks, a honeybee exhibition, a raptor show, kids fishing tank, BB gun range, and a butterfly house. So you're going to love it. Your kids are going to love it. It's going to be an awesome time. So head on over to ecowildexpo.com to get more information on the show and to go ahead and grab your tickets. And hey, mark it on your calendar, May 10th through the 12th. Be there. We want to see you and we're excited to talk to you. So we'll see you at the EcoWild Expo this May 10th through the 12th at the Mobile Convention Center in Mobile, Alabama. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. 
For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Alright guys, welcome to the first episode of our four-part Western series where we're going to be covering uh, basically how you can make your dream hunt happen, which means going out west and chasing these western animals with whatever weapon and whatever season and whatever state. You know, we're mostly talking about uh, stuff west of Kansas, I guess. So Wyoming, Montana, Idaho, New Mexico, Arizona, stuff like that. Uh, over these next four weeks, we're going to be covering whitetails, which we are doing today. We're going to be covering elk, uh, mule deer, and pronghorn. So I'm sitting here with Jacob in Nashville. So we're, we're recording in person for once, which is pretty nice. So Jacob, how are you doing, man? Doing good, man. Uh, absolutely having a blast having you up here. And uh, very excited about this episode, guys. Uh, we're talking with a you know, a pretty awesome guy in the hunting industry, especially when it comes to Western hunting and just having the, you know, the right personality to be a good ambassador uh, for us all hunters. Um, and today, you know, we're going to be talking, you know, again, whitetails and, you know, you're probably wondering like, you know, why would I go hunt whitetails out West? Well, it's, you know, really different from what we do back here out back East, you know, where we're hunting in tree stands and, you know, doing a lot more, you know, uh, you know, quote unquote, still hunting, you know, in a stand, you're not actually out there really spotting stock and really, you know, put a move on in these deer and out West, that's exactly what they do. And again, we'll talk, uh, with our guests, uh, this week. And I, again, you know, with that all being said, you know, Andrew, how about you kind of do a little intro on who we're going to be, um, interviewing for this week? Well, I, I will say that, you know, you mentioned why go out West for whitetails. Did we mention in our last two podcasts, how many whitetails we saw in Wyoming? I believe we did, but just on another statement, let's, let's reinstate that. Um, so yes, guys, we saw a ton of whitetails last uh, last time we were in Wyoming on this hunt. Um, some of them were on public land, some were on private land, but just the sheer numbers of whitetails. And the class, man, the, the like quality of the bucks, too. Yeah, I mean, you're looking at deer that, you know... Body sizes, I mean, you know, around, you know, a big mature buck is probably around, probably 250, probably pretty easily. Uh, and then, you know, we saw a couple of dudes that just had, you know, studs for, you know, antlers yeah. on their head, man. I mean, just, you know, 100 and probably 35 to 140 inch deer easily, probably yeah. a couple oh, of bigger dude. than that. When you, when you drive past an alfalfa field and there's 100 deer in it and 5 to 10 of them are Pope and Young bucks, I mean, that's reason enough for me to buy a tag and drive for 30 hours. But with that being said, let's talk about who we have on. So today we have the privilege of talking to Mr. Randy Newberg from Fresh Tracks and also uh, Hunt Talk Radio and the Hunt Talk Forum. He's, he's, a, he's all over the hunting industry. He's been in the hunting industry um, producing content now for uh, probably close to 10 years, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Uh, first with On Your Own Adventures, now with Fresh Tracks. Uh, and then he also runs the Hunt Talk Forum, and then his YouTube channel is also very active. So if you don't know who Randy is, I'd highly suggest going and checking out his content on uh, YouTube, because he's got a lot of full episodes on there, but he's also got a lot of 
regular, you know, short clips. He's got day by day hunts. He's got tips. Um, pretty much anything you'd need to know, I guess. I mean, Randy produces some great content, and not only that, but he's also a really, really, really good advocate for us as a hunting community, and he's also an incredible advocate, one of the best in the country for backcountry hunters and anglers and our public lands. And Randy's a good guy to have on our side, and we're thrilled to be interviewing him. Yeah, and again, I mean, Randy is, like you said, a great guy. Um, I'm ex- you know, extremely excited to be talking with him this week. And one reason we're talking with him is because he's extremely passionate. Even though he lives out in Montana, he's extremely passionate about hunting whitetails. And uh, as we'll talk today, you'll kind of hear about, you know, the number of whitetails he's been able to harvest compared to mule deer just because his focus is more on whitetails uh, because of his, you know, his background, his tradition from where he's from. But, you know, it's a great opportunity to be able to talk to somebody that's extremely knowledgeable about doing these hunts out there and really brings to the table really good uh, knowledge and a knowledge base of you know, where are good places to look for whitetails? Because that's the thing, guys. You know, whitetails are not just everywhere out west. you got to go in certain places, find certain train features to find these deer. And also, you got to find units in regions, depending on the state you try to hunt in, that are going to be easy tags to draw if you want to be able to do these hunts, you know, every year or every other year. Uh, so that's very important. And we'll kind of go into that a little bit today. And, you know, the importance of having a system like Onyx uh, to be able to make yourself extremely effective you know, while hunting out there uh, and be able to, you know, uh, differentiate the properties that you're going to be hunting on from public to private because everything looks the same out there, guys. I mean, not all properties have boundaries and, or should I say, have like fence rows for boundaries. So it's really important to know that the ground you're standing on is public land so you can, you know, fly, you know, you know, fly under the radar and, you know, be safe and, you know, do everything the right way. Um, but, you know, this episode is going to be a great episode. You know, we're going to talk tags. We're going to talk tactics. We're going to talk, you know, different scouting tactics as well of, you know, how to make yourself as effective as possible, especially going out there, guys, as an Easterner, going out there and really set yourself up for success. Because that's the big thing, guys. That's the reason we're doing this is to help guys shorten their learning curve to be as successful as possible when they go out there and have a good time. I mean, and that's another big thing. You know, you want to be successful. You want to have a good time. You want to have a good experience. And that's what we're trying to set up for you guys. And again, that's pretty much what we're going to bring to you on this episode. Now, Andrew, with that being said, I can. how about we talk a little bit about what we've got going on right now. So right now we're in Nashville hanging out, um, you know, having a little good time. Andrew just had his birthday, so uh, we're up here doing a little celebration. Uh, just finally moved to Nashville, and uh, everything's been going pretty good with yeah. that all being said. Yeah, dude, and now it's just time to plan for this fall. Hopefully I'll get to go to Georgia for bear, maybe Florida for sandbar deer, uh, if I draw that tag, uh, Wyoming cow elk. If the Wyoming cow elk doesn't work out, then we're definitely going to try Arizona mule deer. But that's kind of what we got going on, just planning some stuff in our free time and getting set up for this fall, whether it be whitetails at home or going somewhere else. But uh, Well, another thing is, let's talk a little bit about the total archery challenge that you were able to go to oh, yeah. uh, this weekend. So, um, again, guys, the total archery challenge was this week. Uh, Andrew was able to go. I was not because I was still moving everything. Uh, so t- tell us a little bit about that and how that was. You know, first time it's been down here in yeah. the South. <laughs> so that's a that's kind of a Western thing that's been super popular, and they do it all over the West. Like in, I know they do it in Montana, Utah, Wyoming, and I, I think Colorado. I could be wrong, but that that's gotten such a big big you know uh, big audience out there. I guess or 
just such good feedback that they decided to bring it to Tennessee, uh, just outside of Chattanooga. So I had a couple friends shooting in it, a couple BHA buddies, and BHA was hosting an after party. And I wasn't able to make it up to shoot the bow, but I was able to make it to the after party. And basically the total archery challenge is like a 3D shoot, but you can do certain courses. Like they have, they had the locals course, which is like a regular 3D shoot. And then they have, uh, I know Sitka sponsored one course where they were shooting crazy distances, like 100 yards. And then another company, I'm not sure who, it might have been Mountain Ops, but I could be wrong. Uh, sponsored another one where they're shooting like 120 yards in the mountains with their bows and it's like physical hiking to each target and it's it's just supposed to be like a challenge you know it's supposed to be really hard physically and you know uh, with your bow skills (laughs) and it usually entails a lot of lost arrows lower scores than people are used to but it seemed like a great time and next year I'm definitely going to be shooting in it but met a lot of great guys it was great seeing all my friends from BHA from around the country and great meeting new people there. So y'all, if you're not already, get on the uh, Southeast chapter of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers Facebook page and uh, join up, man, and keep an eye on it for future events. You know, we got pint nights and we got some other stuff coming up. Storytelling night with Kevin Murphy in Tennessee. Uh, That'll that'll be really fun. Mm -hmm. So hopefully I'll be able to make it back up here for that. Uh, but these events are fun, guys. Great people to know, and I would highly, highly suggest making it up to these. Uh, I think I'll be up here for that storytelling night, which is, I, I think, the it's, second no, or it's the, the fourth? Yes, the second of uh, June. So June 2nd is a Saturday. Uh, we're going to have that storytelling event. Uh, it's just going to be a great time, guys. We're going to be meeting at, I forget what the brewery's name is, but uh, it's downtown Nashville. We're going to have a good time hanging out, just telling hunting stories, guys. It's going to be an absolute blast. So if you're in the area, come on down. Uh, I know I'll be there along with uh, a lot of our other buddies, and uh, Andrew's going to try to make it up for that. But, again, guys, you know that's pretty much what we've been up to. But, uh, you know, let's uh, turn it over to our interview with yeah. Mr. Randy Newberg. Yep. All right, and now we got Mr. Randy Newberg on the phone. Randy, how are you doing, man? I'm doing great, guys. Thanks for having me on your podcast. And thanks for coming on, Randy. We really, really appreciate it. You're a you're you're somebody that both of us definitely look up to, and we've gotten a lot of inspiration for you from you over these last you know two years or three years or whatever. And you're part of the reason that we ended up going to Wyoming. So. We figured you'd be the person, perfect person to talk to when we're doing this series about how to make a Western hunt happen because we drew a lot of our knowledge from the stuff that you put out on YouTube and on your podcast and on Hunt Talk. Well, I appreciate that, guys, but I hope when we're all done that you don't lose all your subscribers when they say, who is that guy you had on there? <laughs> I don't think that'll happen. <laughs> <laughs> Well, again, Randy, we do appreciate you coming on and, again, making time for us this evening. And I, I think this is going to be an excellent episode. Guys are going to get a lot of out of this, especially myself. I'm very interested in picking your brain on this topic of just whitetails. And that's really why we have you on here is, is to really figure out, you know, why is someone interested or would be interested in heading out west to hunt whitetails while we have in our, in our backyards down here. But before we jump into that, would you just give us a little bit of background about you, you know, where you're from, kind of what you do for a living and really you know, uh, how you became, who you become to this day, especially when it comes to this whitetail hunting in general. Yeah, well, I'll try to make it brief, but uh, my hunting started as a whitetail hunter in the woods of northern Minnesota up on the Canadian border. And I think there's 
two parts of your DNA that you never get rid of if you grow up there. One is your passion for white pills, and the other is your passion for walleyes. So I, I now live in Montana. I've lived here since 1991, and uh, I can't get rid of the white tail bug, and I live in the trout capital of the world, and my wife and I fish walleyes. So I can't, uh, I can't explain it other than there is something about a white tail in November. Yeah, that's huge. And again, that's one thing that we really wanted to talk about was, you know, this how versatile and how widespread whitetails are out there in that terrain. And that's one thing we talked about in our last episode of, you know, driving out there, how many whitetails we saw. I mean, it was unbelievable. And then the quality of bucks. I mean, it's one thing to see a bunch of whitetails, but it's another thing to be able to see quality bucks uh, in a bunch of them. Uh, I mean, it, that was huge to be able to go out there and see a bunch of mature bucks, you know, close to public land or on public land. And, uh, you know, if our tag was good for that unit, I would uh, probably rather pull the trigger on a big whitetail than a big yeah. muley, personally. Uh, yeah, I would have hopped out of the truck. I would have went after one of those right t- whitetails right then if we had a tag for that unit. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the good news is, in Wyoming, the deadline is coming up here May 31st. The number of leftover tags that will be there for non-residents in the northeast part of the state, the north central part, and the far east part, amazing amount of tags will be left over. And now this year they added, I don't know if you look, but they added a bunch of uh, limited entry whitetail tags for non-residents where I'm sure it's like every other year, the odds of drawing them will be 100%. And if you have a little bit of talent in reading a map or a GPS or your Onyx map system, you're going to find plenty of places to go and chase them. Yeah. And uh, I, I just think about that. I think about it here in Montana, uh, Idaho, eastern Washington, uh, this whole northern Rockies area. Just We, we have lots and lots of whitetails. Yeah. And the age class, as you guys observed, I mean, no, no herd of deer do you see where you aren't going to have probably the bell curve or the peak of the age class. Every every herd you see, the, the peak is going to be somewhere north of the three-and-a-half-year-old age, which out here, because they have pretty decent habitat, uh, those three-and-a-half-year-old bucks are going to be very nice bucks, and then you get some four-and-a-half, five-and-a-half, and six-year-olds, and all of a sudden... It's like, ooh, I, I, let me go after that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what the, the old movie, you, you, I don't know if any of your listeners uh, saw the movie Top Gun. Uh, it was about, the, I don't know, I think it was in the 80s. I'm aging myself here. But uh, <laughs> Tom Cruise says, this is a target-rich environment. Uh, and, <laughs> that describes uh, it. I'd say that that's the case when you see a herd of, up here, here in the in the west, these white tails, the the buck to doe ratios are crazy. Also, you know, we're pushing forty to fifty bucks per hundred doe, 
And that's basically exactly what we saw when we were driving through Wyoming. When the, there's a big alfalfa field next to the road where we were driving, and there's like a hundred whitetails in it, and I mean, literally half of them were bucks, and a couple of them were, you know, Pope and Young or better bucks, just really good bucks, man. And like you said, it's a target-rich environment. When we got out there and saw that, we're like, huh? If I run across a whitetail in the unit we're going to, I might, I might not come home with a mule deer. <laughs> decided to come to Wyoming and I guess we can use Wyoming as an example because we did an episode on our TV show that's out on our YouTube channel and our Amazon channel (laughs) where we took leftover Wyoming whitetail tags and we went and my buddy Matt from Onyx Map shot a nice whitetail. What's the biggest reason and I'm, I'm asking this out of curiosity for myself what keeps people from your part of the world coming to a place like Wyoming to hunt whitetails? Generally, it's going to be people think that it's it's way too expensive or they have a, a incorrect perception of what the public lands out west are like because they're coming from a place where our public lands do get very crowded sometimes. And I guess they assume that if they go out west, they're going to end up spending a bunch of money and have the same problems that they have at home, see the same amount of deer. So they think they either have a wrong view of it or they just think it's unattainable for cost or time or, or whatever else. And I 100% agree with that. Uh, I mean, Andrew's right on the money with that. I mean, that's the number one reason I hear guys not want to go out west is money and time. That's it. And really, when they say both money and time, they also also mean knowledge. They, they think they're way underprepared, which some of them might be. I mean, you know, but it's one of those things that you don't know until you know. So you really don't know what you're getting yourself into until you get there. And that's a great example from our last episode talking about Wyoming. You know, we thought the area looked a certain way and we got there and it was way rougher than we thought it was going to be. And and, and that's something that a lot of guys really, uh, really think of and they really worry about it. They're they're more of worrying than actually being productive and, you know, wanting to just go out there and get it done. And to me, the number one issue is, again, just that time and money aspect. And then guys just kind of sit on that and they're like, oh, it's one of those things that's unattainable. And sooner or later, you know, hopefully I'll be able to do that hunt. Yeah, one day. Yeah, one day. Actually, I just did a post today on Facebook and I had a bunch of guys comment on it because we were talking about elk and uh, talking about, you know, one of our next episodes coming out, talking about elk on this series. And, you know, who would be interested in doing a Western hunt, uh, you know, coming from the East? And there's a lot of guys that comment on, they're like, oh, man, I'd love to do that one day, but there's no way I could do that right now. And I start talking to these guys, and they're like, oh, you know, it's time or money. And these guys are like, because they want to go outfitted. They want to go on an yeah. outfitter. They want to spend eight to $10,000 on a hunt. And I'm like, if you go out there DIY, you can go to Colorado for all in under probably $1,200, counting travel to get out there and do that hunt. Um, and, and a lot of people don't understand that. And I know you're a huge public land advocate, and that's one thing you advocate for is just kind of do it yourself, DIY. And uh, you do a great job with that. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm always curious what are the hurdles that people perceive? Because I, I think in our content, we prove that the fact that everything we do is on public land. I hope we've proven that the hunting quality is there. So uh, I'm I'm always interested to hear what what people are thinking of. Okay, I have to hire an outfitter, like you said, or oh, it's going to cost me eight thousand dollars, or I, I need you know twelve days of uninterrupted time. Da da da. Or I'm 
go then there's going to be a million hunters and it's just it's not that way it's uh, I I know your your listeners might be having some of those concerns you mentioned and if they are I would agree that hey, even at the highest end if you went just by yourself and you didn't split the gas cost with a buddy just you went out by yourself I think I struggled to spend more than two thousand dollars on a deer hunt in Wyoming, including the tag, including everything. Yeah, the tag I think is three hundred and eighty nine dollars or something like that, and that's my biggest expense. Other than that, you just go pitch a tent on the public land, go chase the deer, find one, put your tag on it, and head home. So whatever the price of gas is, uh, and I don't. I have a hard time putting food in my hunting budget because when I'm at home, I eat. So why is that going to be part of my hunting budget? Maybe that's my rationalization to my wife. And in my <laughs> other life, I'm, I'm a CPA. I'm a tax accountant. So I'm pretty good at financing these financial arguments when it comes to hunting. But uh, I, I think anybody who's listening, uh, I would, back to your, one of you mentioned $1,200. I think if you split the travel between two guys, you could easily do it for twelve hundred bucks. Mm-hmm. I definitely think so. I don't know. I I'm not sure how much we spent on Wyoming. I know we bought our tags, and then when we drove out there, each of us had a couple hundred bucks. Yeah, I was gonna say. I think it took us a total to drive from Alabama <clears throat> to our portion of a Wyoming. Uh, it was exactly a twenty-seven hour drive, uh, a little over seventeen hundred miles. And I think it cost us right at $600 in gas. And that was our biggest expense, I mean, other than tags. And, again, we split that and then our tags. So we were at about six, 680 $650 a, pe- a person uh, for tags and, and your gas. And then just a little bit of money for food and then, you know, most of our gear. Now, I'll say I'm a gear junkie, so I wanted to go out and buy really nice boots and this other kind of stuff. And <laughs> I'll say one thing I really got out of you on a side note uh, from just watching you and listening to you over the last couple of years is, uh, trekking poles. That was the biggest, that was one of oh, the most man. favorite pieces of gear I took was trekking poles because my butt, <laughs> I, I was leaning my butt up against those trekking poles the whole week. Jacob <laughs> Jacob let me use the trekking poles for 10 minutes and I almost didn't give them back. Um, <laughs> it's funny how many people laugh at me for using trekking poles and then when they use them, their comment is pretty similar. Yeah. I always carry extra sets in the truck for guest hunters and they just it just saves you, yeah. especially, you know, there's not a lot of flat places out west, even if it's not really steep terrain, it's still rolling, and there's little cuts and, and places that, and if you're walking, hiking all day, and you got, you know, 20, 30 pounds in your pack of gear and stuff, having those drinking pools just makes it a whole lot easier. Yeah, now, now on the on the subject of gear needed, um, is, is there anything else that you would really suggest? I mean, what, 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 when you're looking at doing a whitetail hunt, what are some things on your gear list that you just, you have to have? Uh, I assume they already have a bow or a rifle that they use back home, so you don't need to change that. The only thing I think you really need to hunt the public land of the West uh, is certainly an Onyx type mapping system because out west in a lot of the states the private lander owners do not have to post their property so you just need to know where you're at so you need to spend some time learning how to read a surface map and 
okay? You need to know how to quarter a deer and pack it out. So you're gonna need a decent knife and you're gonna need a decent pack. To me, those are, once you get to that point, you really don't need much more. It's, it's that simple. And, you know, you probably have a tent that you use back home in, the, in Wyoming, in Montana. You know, a lot of that stuff that you use back home is going to work just fine. And if you start doing it every year and your budget allows, maybe you upgrade this item or that item. But in, in the situation of hunting western whitetails, I would never go western whitetail hunting without my Onyx system. And then it's, you know, just a good pack. Probably a good pair of boots would be important. Uh, a lot of people get hung up on camouflage. Uh, I wouldn't be that worried about camouflage uh, unless you're doing the archery gig, which if you are, the camouflage that you have at home is gonna work just fine. Um, if you're hunting one of the rifle seasons, uh, you're either gonna be wearing an orange hat or an orange vest. So the value of camouflage is somewhat mitigated at that point, right? I don't like to see people go spend tons and tons of money on new gear and end up not going on their hunt. Go on your hunt and figure out a way to, to make it work with what you have. Um, and, but, but, but don't get me wrong, there's always, I never want to turn down an excuse to buy new gear. I'm not saying that, that those aren't valid reasons, <laughs> but I don't want someone to stay home because they didn't feel like they could afford the gear part of it. I would yeah. bet what you use to hunt in your home area is going to work just fine for Western Whitetails. Um, the other thing, and this is just so many of my friends back home in, in Minnesota, do not hunt with binoculars. Uh, a good pair of binoculars is important here because as you guys noticed, it's very open. And yep. you're gonna spot a lot of these deer from far distances. And having a good pair of binoculars is very, very helpful if you can do it. And that is, I think, a huge point. Uh, on a funny note with that, Andrew actually, when we were in Wyoming, I had a pair of 12 by 50 binos and he just had a pair of eight by 40s and he was picking out more deer at, with those 8x40s at over a mile than I could with the 12s just because he had a little bit clearer glass uh, and really was just helping him out a ton. So another thing, guys, you don't have to have these giant pair of binos to be able to pick out deer at a really far distance. Uh, it's amazing. I, I, depending on where I'm at, I use either an 8x40 or a 10x42. Yeah, and those 8s work great for me because I use them out there and I use them back here for deer and squirrel and turkey and everything else. So that one pair of binos has served me from you know swamps in Alabama out to the Rocky Mountains in the west. I, I know people who spend a lot of money in optics, and if you have it in your budget, it's great to have the highest quality optics your budget allows. Um, but some people feel that, oh, if I don't show up with $5,000 of optics in my pack here, I'm gonna get laughed out of camp. No, just get what will work for you, both in terms of your budget and what would work for you at home, and the odds are it's gonna work for whitetails out here. Thanks. And also just come and, and do it and have fun because I, whitetails and pronghorn are kind of like the gateway drug to western hunting. <laughs> yep. when, when you come out here and you do whitetails or pronghorn, you're going to start doing elk. And then you're going to start applying for moose or sheep or some of the other stuff. As, as your budget grows, you're, 
your interest never decreases if you come out west. It seems to always increase. The only hope is that your budget can increase as much as your interest increases. <laughs> yeah. And another thing you said that really kind of uh, hit me the, hit me in a certain way is that, you know how you're saying some guys going out there, with they want to have $5,000 in, in optics. One thing that really was turning me off of hunting out west was I was seeing all these guys on YouTube and this and that, you know, running, you know, three, four thousand dollar uh, pair of just, you know, optics with a spotting scope, binos, you know, uh, scope and range finder. And I was like, there's no way I can do that. And it seemed like that's all you had to have. or That's what you needed to hunt out there because how far you were looking. And with our hunt and what we just did, it, it proves the point. You don't have to have that much money in optics. Yes, it's good to have if your budget allows it, but it's not necessary to really be successful. And another thing that you said that I really want to touch on is, uh, I, I know you're affiliated with Mystery Ranch Backpacks, and I actually just bought my first pack from them. But I'm interested in what pack do you use normally on a deer hunt? Uh, whether you're, you know, camping from the truck or doing day hunts, or you know, what's your setup on your backpack? Because I'm really interested in that. Yeah, so sticking to the the Mystery Ranch lineup of packs that you said you bought, I have everything in my Metcalf pack. It's I'm trying to remember how many liters it is. Uh, uh, I can't remember. <laughs> I should know. <laughs> I was gonna say it's, uh, it, I think it's seventy. I I I use that as my day pack because it folds really flat, and I carry my survival gear in there. I'll carry an extra layer of clothes. I'll carry my my tools for gutting and gilling, uh, some game bags. Um, that's about it for my day pack. That's in there most of the time when I'm hunting whitetails. I'm on the move. I'm I'm not doing a, a spike camp or a high country camp. I'm usually staying at a campground or at a motel or whatever works for me and my camera crew. But we're walking a lot. We are moving, setting up, glassing. Okay, didn't see anything. Get up, move, glass, move, glass, move, glass. And so in a day, we'll put on five or six miles. And what you will find is a lot of these whitetails get pushed a half mile to two miles away from a road. And the further you get from those places, the densities are crazy. And that's where you're going to find the quality bucks. Well, a lot of guys who I grew up with, and I was the same way when I moved out here, I hunted near roads because I thought, I don't want to have to drag this deer you know, <laughs> yep. far a mile. I've, I've had to drag him out of the swamps of Minnesota for 400 yards, and I thought I was going to die of a heart attack <laughs> when I was young. <laughs> so I was always uh, discouraged from hunting that far from roads and trails because it was a worry of, if I shoot this deer and I can't get it out in a timely manner and it spoils, I'd feel terrible. And I, I encounter a lot of people who have that same concern. So that's part of why on our YouTube channel we've done these videos, we call them the gutless method. There's one out there for white-tailed deer and there's one out there for elk. But the point of it is that you're gonna be walking, you're gonna be hiking, and when you get your deer, there's a very good chance you're gonna have to quarter it up and pack it out of there which is not that hard to do. And anymore, when I see people skidding an animal or dragging it or whatever, I'm like, let me help you quarter that up. It's way easier to get it out of here yes. in pieces than it is in one big piece. So I, I think that if people take some time, you can go on the internet 
and you can find videos about how to do that gutless method. And just know how to do it, even practice on a deer around home. And with any decent pack, some game bags, you'll have that deer quartered up, have it back to the truck, and you'll be in great shape. Yeah. And the, the point of that is, and I don't know if you guys saw it in your hunt last year, but a lot of people still have that concern. And so when you walk a mile to two miles away from a road, you've got the place all to yourself. Mm-hmm. There's nobody in there. The deer, I, I hunt them a lot in November, which we're spoiled out here. We get to rifle hunt with uh, <laughs> in the rut in November. And they're running around doing their crazy thing that whitetails do. And it's just fun to sit there and watch them do that stuff. And you're there, you're kind of the only person around there. Sometimes I've looked around like, is she staying close? I haven't seen anybody for two days. I'm going to check my calendar. But <laughs> it's just that nobody hiked in there. Yeah. And you see our footage. I mean, all of the white tails we shoot come out on our backs. And people are like, really? You, you backpack for white tails? Oh, yeah. So... That's, that's probably a, a piece of information, the two pieces of information I think people really need to know if they come west is how to read a surface map on a, on a system and then how to take care of an animal in the field if you end up having to quarter it out and, and get it out. Yeah, quartering them up is something that I kind of kept in my back pocket at, when we came back from Wyoming because on some of these places I'm hunting here in Alabama, walking way in, it's usually pretty nasty terrain trying to get in there and dragging a deer out is pure misery i mean it's just not fun so packing them out nobody packs deer out out here i don't know of anybody who packs deer so i'm going to start doing that because it will make my life a heck of a lot easier yeah and actually i want to do a film this uh this year uh record us one of us packing a deer out on public land in alabama because no one has yet to do that and that's something that we're extremely interested in doing is uh, doing a little short film of, first of all, how to pack out a deer, uh, you know, using certain pieces of gear, but doing it in the South. I and mean, that's something that, you know, it's unheard of, I mean, packing out deer. But we hunt places on public land that, you know, I'm not, I'm not dragging a deer out a mile. There's, it is not happening. Yeah. So I've I'm, learned that lesson the hard way. Yeah, I'm cutting that bad boy up and throwing it on my pack and <laughs> strapping it down. We're good to go. Yeah. Um, but, you know, another topic that we wanted to talk to you about, which we kind of talked a little bit about so far, is, you know, when you're scouting using Surface Maps or Onyx or whatever you're using, uh, you know, what is something that you're really looking for to stop, you know, that will hold uh, these whitetails? You know, what, you know, areas are you looking for? What terrain features? What habitat are you looking for on these maps? Yeah, and what you, it, you guys have so much cover where you're at. I mean, it's so thick. You get out west, and what do you see? You see ribbons of cover, right? You mm-hmm. see a creek bottom, or you see a coulee or a drainage coming up, and there's some cover in that drainage. But a lot of the tops of the ridge lines are are pretty well uh, you know, exposed or, or open. So if I'm scouting, the things that I'm looking for for whitetails are any places where there are these ribbons of cover that cross into public land. And a lot of times you'll have, say, three square miles of public land that is adjacent to some private land, and that private land has agriculture. A lot of the times the bedding covers actually on the public land. The seed and everything else is on the private land. But those deer, especially in October when some of these seasons are open, here in Montana we open usually the fourth 
let's see, this year we opened October 20th for rifle season. Those deer are so patternable. Uh, you, you can see them and it's like, wow, they do that every morning, <laughs> come up in bed, and then in the afternoon they turn around and they go back down and feed. And until the rut really gets going, they kind of stay in those patterns. So I, if I'm going to be hunting in the October period, I'm looking for where are their bedding places. And then when I'm hunting them in the peak of the rut, I'm looking for places where I can sit on a knob or a little corner in the creek and I can overlook a lot of country and glass because they're moving so much. With our high buck to doe ratios, there's a lot of competition among the bucks. So they're moving all day long and I just sit there and I glass and I glass and I glass. And again, I'm looking to do that in ribbons of cover, uh, creek bottoms, drainages, Sometimes, you know, a lot of our drainages, as we call them out here, coolies, they don't have water in them, but they do have vegetation in them. So I've, I've seen deer bed and whitetails bed in some of the craziest places. It's like, really? That looks like mule deer country. Hmm. But you look at it and, no, that's whitetail. I think I'll go shoot that one. <laughs> <laughs> so when, when I'm scouting, I'm looking for places that are, are going to allow them to bed. And that allows me to eliminate the overwhelming majority of the terrain on my map because the bedding cover is the very small portions that remain. They're not there. I've found them bedded out in the tall grass or out in the sage. But as a general rule, those aren't the places they're going to be. So if you look at how the West lays out, by just looking at places with bedding cover, you now have eliminated probably 80% of your map. And now you can really be effective in how you do this with your time. Because we're all there on a limited time or we're trying to go to this spot, check that out, go to this spot, check that out because we're new to the spot. We, we got a plan. We got to really you know, cover as much ground as we can, eliminate as many places as we can. So if you can eliminate a lot of those places on your map just by looking at OnX or Google Earth, that puts you way ahead of the game. Now when you show up, you're like, okay, this piece of BLM has this creek going through the southeast corner. I'm going to go check that. This piece of state land out here has a creek going right through the middle or has some bedding cover that runs up towards the high ground. I'm going to go check that. It allows you to be way more effective with your time. You're not just stumbling and wandering around. And Randy, something you said there that I'm kind of interested in, uh, you know, while we were in Wyoming, we were told that, you know, you know, whitetails, if you find a, a decent water source, you're going to find whitetails. In your in your opinion, your professional opinion, how important is water to whitetails and for locating deer as well? Um, it's pretty important in what I'll say, eastern Montana, eastern Wyoming. Uh, you get to the whitetails of western Montana and northern Idaho, eastern Washington, there's so much water, there, there's creeks and rivers and ponds everywhere that you really can't use it as much of a factor there. You get to southeast Montana, eastern Colorado, eastern Wyoming, it's a huge issue. Um, you can predict that the, on their way every day, they're going to stop and water somewhere, either on their way to, to where they're going to feed at night, where they're feeding at night there, there might be water, or on their way back, somehow they're going to water and uh, it doesn't take much for them to water. 
But again, you can use that as kind of a, a way to eliminate a lot of other ground. If you find ground that's two, three miles, four miles from any water sources, pretty much cross that off your list. There's not going to be much game there, especially whitetails. Okay. Well, another thing that you talked about earlier was just Onyx and how you use Onyx, but would you go into a little more detail of the importance of having their product for out there when it comes to like just finding some of these units that, you know, might have a little bit less public land and, you know, it might be what they call checkerboarding where, you know, the properties kind of, you know, are spaced out, you know, they're only connected by a corner or by a little bit. And like, how do you use Onyx on those kind of properties to really help you become successful uh, and really give you the confidence to hunt areas like that? In most units in the West, or most states in the West, you draw a tag that's good for a specific unit or a specific region. Not always, but normally. And so, very first thing I do is I look at that region in total and say, all right, where are the pieces that are yellow, which are BLM, the pieces that are light blue, which is state land, and in Montana and Wyoming, you can hunt that state land. In Colorado, you can't. Uh, and anything green, which would be U.S. Forest Service forests or U.S. Forest Service grasslands, because the, the grasslands are managed by the Forest Service also. Okay, so yeah. I would look at those, and a lot of times they're really small pieces. Um, and when I say, out west, when you say it's a small piece, it's only 300 acres, my friends back in the Midwest are like, 300 acres? Man, that's a lot. <laughs> so... Uh, most Westerners, most of the residents aren't going to mess with something that's only 300 acres. I mess with those places. If they look on the map like good habitat and it's only 300 acres, I don't care. A white tail can make a living in 300 acres. So sometimes you can avoid pressure by not hunting the huge big pieces. You hunt, you, you build a little milk route of these smaller pieces. Yeah, they got to eat it. There might be 30 little 300-acre pieces in your unit. Maybe only 10 of them have good bedding cover, good whitetail habitat. But those 10 are probably worth looking at over the course of your hunt because they're going to have less hunting pressure. Now, if you have a big piece that's 6,000 acres, that's going to attract most of the hunters. And that's fine. And I go hunt those sometimes also. But kind of my sleeper spots, the places where I shoot most of my whitetails, are these little 300-acre pieces. Yeah, and I think that's something that's really important just because, you know, a lot of people, they, they think that, you know, going out west, you know, even coming down here in the south, I mean, 300 acres, you know, to me, that's not a huge property by no means. I mean, that is pretty small because most of the public land down here we're hunting is, you know, you know, anywhere between, you know, a couple thousand acres to, you know, a hundred thousand acres. But, you know, up there, I think that's really big is kind of do those little, kind of like you said, little sleeper spots. And that's one thing we actually started doing was scouting uh, Wyoming. And we were looking at some of these creek bottoms and stuff like this that, you know, they might have these, these real small walking areas or real small just state land or BLM uh, that's down there on the creeks yeah, and on these little just, rivers. Something that just crosses a creek, you know, in a spot. Yeah, and yeah. that's something that, you know, a lot of people I think would overlook is something like that just because like, oh, it's only, you know, a couple hundred acres or it's only 60 acres. Well, if the deer is going to cross that 60 acres, then that's the spot you need to be in to be able to harvest that deer. Yeah, I, where I shoot most of my whitetails in Montana, uh, there's a very skinny piece of fork service land that goes out onto this ridge 
and on all sides, on, on three of the other four sides, it's all private agriculture. Where does every deer go that's going to bed? They go in that little knob that has the timber on it, and I'm sitting there waiting for them, and boom. <laughs> it's, most people, if they knew that's where we're shooting these deer, so that that's something i kind of wanted to ask you about real quick was uh and a lot of these spots you're talking about these ribbons of cover where you're watching these deer are you more setting up in a spot just trying to have one pass by or are you more setting up to glass a larger area where you can put a stalk on one um it's a little bit of both um, it depends on how the property lays out. If it's a pretty tight spot, I know that I'm sitting there because they're going to pass through in the morning on their way from feeding to bedding or in the afternoon from bedding to feeding or in the rut. I, it's pretty easy to see where they're going to go in the rut. You know, they're going to follow the trails that you're going to find some trees that they use for their rubs and their, their scraped limbs. It's the same as what you guys have back there. And so if you've hunted much whitetail, you can kind of look at it and say, oh, that spot right there looks like there's, there's going to be deer coming through here. And so I'd say most of my time is I sit and wait. But in the West, there's usually enough topography to any of these creek bottom areas that you can get up high enough out of the creek bottom where you can glass quite a ways. But yet if something comes by you, they're going to come within a couple hundred yards and maybe give you a shot. So you're kind of doing both at the same time. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I could definitely see how we could have applied that. Which, the area that we saw all these deer. What's that, Randy? I I have also climbed on a big knob that I knew, okay, I can see a mile in every direction. And just watched until I see white tails go into some thick cover. And then I go over there and wait for him to come out. Oh, there you go. Set up on him. So, it's a bit of both. Well, I mean, I think that's huge. Is just the hunting tactics. That's another thing that a lot of people, you know, coming from our neck of the woods or, you know, our part of the country, you know, back east, that's something that a lot of people wonder about is, you know, they're coming into a situation where they don't have any knowledge of hunting that area. And, you know, that lack of knowledge is really kind of scary to a lot of people because they don't know what they're going to have to expect. They don't know, you know, how they need to be hunting that area. And like a guy told me on Facebook today, he was like, I'd like to go out there, but I don't have any buddies that are experienced in it. I'm going to wait until I find somebody who is experienced hunting out there and then I'm going to go with them. I'm like, dude, yeah. if you if you live back east, you might not meet some of that hunts elk or hunts mule deer. I'm like, that's, that's right. the likelihood of that's going to be very low unless you're going out there seeking people or getting in organizations like BHA or you know another local uh, or like the uh, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation or something like that. That's the only way you're going to find somebody that's that capable that's done that hunt that lives in your area. So it's one of those things yeah. you just got to take the risk. You got to go out there, buy the tag, go out there with whatever gear you can, and just make that hunt happen. And it's more about, again, resources like your podcast and your show and our podcast to be able to, to learn what you can here and then go out there and apply some of that. But a lot of it, you have to learn on the fly. I mean, we learned so much on the fly in Wyoming about what was good deer habitat, which we thought wasn't good deer habitat, and then vice versa, uh, which yeah. was huge. And yeah, I, I tell people that just about every one of my successes is the result of a couple hundred mistakes getting there. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm so below average when it comes to hunting. I just, I, I, the, I, I've been blessed with two traits. One, I'm determined to 
to me, I don't look at it as a mistake. It's part of the learning curve of, okay, this is, I, I made that mistake today, but I've got these five days to hunt. That's something I'm going to learn from that's going to help me fill my tank before my five days are up. And some people might say that was a mistake, and it probably is, but that's not the end of the world. Mistakes are opportunities to learn is how I look at it. Yeah, and that's another thing that, you know, we kind of talked about during our Wyoming trip was, you know, one mistake that we did was not camping in a protected area. We were camping up on this huge ridge top in the side of a saddle, and it was blowing probably 30 miles an hour constant and had some gusts that were, you know, almost twice oh, that. And it was a miserable night. Andrew, Andrew couldn't sleep because one reason he didn't bring a sleeping pad and it the ground froze over and he was freezing his butt this the the second reason it was horrible was i have i have a pretty good tent i have a pretty solid tent but the wind was blowing so hard that the tent was vibrating and knocking loose some of the uh the uh, tie down stakes uh and it's it's mistakes like that which i mean it makes the hunt because it's all about the adventure i mean Hunting, it's, it's called hunting for a reason because you're hunting something. It's not called killing because you're going out there and just harvesting something right then and there. I mean, you got to put a lot of effort into it. There's a lot of mistakes that are made, like you said, and you learn from that. And that's one reason we are super excited about this series is because we learned so much on that hunt. Just one hunt going out there for five days and so many mistakes that we made that I'm now, next time we go out, I'm going to be so much more prepared. And that's what we're trying to do with the listeners is allow them to be prepared going out there and maybe not make some of those mistakes. Or if they do, they might, you know, learn really quickly about how to, you know, stay away from that and go out there and just be successful. And again, that's the one reason guys want to go out west is they want to have a good time. They want to have the adventure, but they want to be successful. Because, uh, I mean, that's one reason we hunt. You know, we love the outdoors, but we want to have that success. And, you know, stuff like this, resources like, you know, everything we've talked about uh, is something that's really going to help somebody be successful out there, uh, which is our game plan. That's our goal. Uh, you know, shorten that learning curve for people uh, to be able to go out there. And I think a whitetail hunt, like you said, is a perfect entry-level hunt to go out west and experience that and really get that bug, that western bug, you know, bite. Uh, so you might go out there and do an elk hunt or, you know, try to start applying for, you know, goat sheep or moose uh so you know this is a really good topic that i think will get a lot of people fired up about that yeah i i just i wish i could have everybody tag along with me for a couple days whitetail hunting in the west and they would realize how easy it is i mean if randy newberg can do it consistently it's got to be pretty easy and it's just going out and doing it is 90% 90% of it, because I go to places, very seldom do I get to go to the same place twice. Almost every hunt we do is a new place. So I've got five days to sort it out, figure it out, and hopefully pack it out. And you just go there and you, you show up with a plan. And the plan is never perfect. It's usually almost, uh, the day you, you park at your first trailhead, the plan is almost obsolete by that time because oh, you realize, yeah. oh man, this looks completely different than I thought. Oh mm-hmm. man, I didn't expect all this hunting pressure over in that spot. It, you know what it is? It, right. You have to learn and be adaptable to what you see as, as what's happening there. And if there's one big difference that I see between Western whitetail hunting and, and whitetail hunting elsewhere is the fact that hardly any of it here happens in tree stamps. Um, and my friends back in the Midwest, they only have a hundred acre piece to hunt. So they're going to play the wind. They're going to have four different tree stands. You know, I, I hunt this one if I got a Northwest wind. I got, I hunt this one on an evening with no wind, da, da, da. 
and I get that because they can't be bumping the deer. But out west, the terrain is so vast and so expansive that if you're just tree stand hunting, you're probably not going to see nearly the number of deer. And another thing with that, uh, which, I mean, that kind of ruined me, I'm not going to lie, for Alabama this past <laughs> season, and Andrew kind of attested that, is I – I was so one of the reason I wanted to do a western hunt was first of all like watching some of your videos and just getting so excited about seeing that spot and stock because in the south or in the east or really midwest anywhere you don't spot and stock deer. I mean some guys will still hunt for deer especially up in the north uh, where you have enough snow where you can track deer but most people are sitting in a blind they're sitting in a sand and that gets extremely boring and to be honest it's to me almost not being very productive in my mindset. So once we went out there and did that mule deer hunt and we were being, you know, spot and stalking, glassing, I loved that so much. When I came back, I really did not have a lot of drive to go sit in a tree stand for the rest of the season in Alabama uh, because of that reason. It's so much more fun to be on the ground, you know, stay moving. You're seeing constant new ground. You're seeing new animals, different animals. If, if you get busted by one, big deal, go find another one. It's, yeah. it's, it's not like you're sitting in a stand and you're, you screwed that spot over. You just get up and keep moving. And uh, absolutely love that. Yeah, it's funny, man, because we get back and, you know, the next week I'm sitting in my tree stand back in Alabama and I'm there for like half an hour. I'm like, man, I miss Wyoming. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I wish I was sitting behind some binos right now rather than sitting here looking at this patch of dirt. <laughs> well, that's another thing is when you're out there and you are seeing behind binos, at least you're being productive and you're actually looking for something. You're not just sitting there in a tree stand like, uh, you know, hope a deer comes by me. And I mean, exactly. So that's one thing is even when you're out there glassing, you you know, there was a couple of times we glassed for, you know, four or five hours just over a huge drainage looking on top of these drainages for these mule deer coming down off the mountain. And, uh, you know, even though we were sitting there for that long, the time flew by because you're constantly trying to find these animals. And it's to me, it's all honesty, I think it's more fun, personally. There's always something to look at. Yeah, always something to look at. There's always something you're doing. You're not just sitting there twiddling your thumbs and, you know, sitting on your hands just waiting to, you know, for something to happen. Uh, and I absolutely, I absolutely love that. I mean, I, I told Andrew, if with my job and my career, if there was any way I could move out – this is a little more west, but if I can move to Wyoming or Colorado or even Kansas or Nebraska, something like that, and I can move out there, I would do that in a heartbeat just for the opportunity for hunting. And just the vast, sheer public land that we have to offer out there, you know, is just so vast and allows for so much opportunity. And, you know, it's something that we're very passionate about. And, you know, it's a great experience uh, for anybody. And it doesn't need to be a once in a lifetime hunt by no means. Yeah, it's, I, I think about, you brought up Kansas. You know, Kansas has three and a half million acres, probably even more now, enrolled in a walk-in hunting program. We go to Kansas and we hunt walk-in hunting land and we shoot bucks every time we're there. And if people knew how easy it was, the easier units in Kansas to draw are the western parts of Kansas, which have way more acreage enrolled in walk-in hunting. Wyoming has walk-in hunting areas. You go to their state website, they have what's called a public access tab. They have HMAs, which are hunter management areas, and then they have walk-in hunting areas. Eastern Montana has the block management program. So even besides all these things we've been talking about, about BLM or Forest Service or state lands, uh, the amount of additional lands that are enrolled in access programs in those states that have a lot of whitetails is significant. And you aren't going to see that many people. That's that's probably the part that's going to surprise most folks. 
Yeah, and that's that that is so huge because when we were out there, I, I will say we ran into a couple people, but it was just for a brief moment. And to be honest, we learned more from those people that we kind of ran into. And it was on the trailhead is where we were running into people. It wasn't necessarily, uh, you know, why we were out there hunting. And we learned so much from this one individual that killed this absolute I call it a monster mule deer. I mean, he was easily, you know, mid-170s. I mean, for me, coming from Alabama, where a trophy deer is 130 inches, seeing a 170-inch-plus mule deer was unbelievable. And he was packing out on a horse. He was an older gentleman. And he literally told us how we should be hunting this area because we were doing it totally wrong. We were glassing private land down below us on some ag where the deer were really focusing on once they came off the hillsides. But he was telling us, you know, get up higher up and start glassing up these big draws where these deer are coming off of. And that's what we did. And that's how we were able to harvest our two bucks. And I mean, even if you do run into people, it's not, I, I, we did not have a bad experience at all when we did talk to some of those people. They were so helpful and very just, you know, kind of excited to be, you know, talking to us, especially when we told them we were from Alabama. They're like, that's crazy. Y'all drove this far out here. Um, and, and, and that's one thing, again, it's just a great opportunity is just be able to go do that. And, uh, you know, absolutely just love it. I mean, it is addicting. Uh, I mean, I am definitely bitten by the Western bug. We're talking about going either back to Wyoming this year for maybe a elk tag, a cow elk tag uh, for general season, or going out to Arizona on the uh, over-the-counter mule deer hunt, which I know you kind of did this year, but y'all went for coos deer. Is that correct? Yep. And that, that Arizona hunt is its probably just, just – complete fun if, if you just want fun that over the counter they call it a non-permit deer tag in arizona uh it's an archery tag that's good for mule deer or the little white tail uh that they have out there they're called the locals call them coos some of the scientists call them cows um, anyhow they're these little white tails and the i think the mule deer part of it in the northern units of Arizona runs December 14th through the end of the year. And then the southern part of the state, it's called any antler deer. So it's good for mule deer or the little whitetails. And that's the whole month of January. And there's so much public land. And you go there and there's nobody there. Now, you guys who have the patience to sit in a tree stand would probably be really good on those hunts because hunting water in Arizona is by far the most effective way. I've got this the ants in the pants problem. I can't sit at a spot for more than about 15 minutes. So I'll probably never arrow one of those little white tails down there because I, I just try to spot and stock them in that noisy grass and rock. Uh, but if I, would, if I had the talent to sit water or find some way to ambush them uh, on the trail leading the water, you look at the success rates of those guys versus the knuckleheads like me who try to spot and stock them, and it's worlds of difference. Uh, even for the mule deer out there, uh, most of the successful mule deer guys find a little water spot, and they're just patient enough. They'll sit there for four days in a row. I don't know how they do it, but they do. Well, you know, with that, with you talking about uh, coos deer, cows deer, uh, I think it's a good kind of uh, lead into this because this is something I'd like to talk to you about is – you know, that's something that, you know, not a lot of people, especially back east, really knows about. They don't know about that, even though it's all it is a smaller whitetail. It's not another uh, subspecies or anything. But 
you know, that's a really cool opportunity to be able to do that over-the-counter hunt is another opportunity for someone to get experience. And it's not really that pricey. Uh, if I believe the tags are in the mid-400s, I believe, for an over-the-counter tag, uh, and depending, like you said, on what region of the state you're hunting in, in Arizona, you can either do any antlered buck, you know, mule deer or coos or cows, or you can do the northern part for, you know, one of the other species. But, you know, that's an awesome opportunity. You know, how about you talk about that for a second? Uh, with I also Havelina and also like kind of the small game down there because I know that's really huge in that area is just the small game. Yep, it's it's amazing if you've watched some of our stuff. We hunt Havelina while we're down there. We hunt quail. We hunt ducks. We <laughs> we hunt rabbits. There, there's so much stuff running around. People think oh it's just a desert. Well, you get up in the mountains in Arizona, even the lower mountains, and it becomes grassland type habitat mixed with brush and and manzanita and oak and stuff like that it's it's really really cool country and there's no shortage of things that you can hunt and if you're willing to hunt with a bow pretty much everything is available to you without having to draw the tag it's just over the counter or you buy a leftover tag because there's usually leftovers and there's tons and tons of public land that's like cool go do it so we've been doing it last year was our second year in a row of doing it and I told my wife, I said, you know, you might want to carve this 10 days out of January on our calendar for the rest of my life because I'm going to be in Southern Arizona. Now, what makes now what makes that hunt so fun? Uh, you're probably the fifth or sixth person I've talked to that has been on this hunt before. Uh, I know a guy that drives from Michigan down to Arizona every year for that hunt. I know a guy from Nebraska that does the same thing. And they've all said it's the most fun Western hunt you can go on that's kind of they almost all say it's kind of low pressure uh, in, in their mindset. So what's a reason that you enjoy that hunt and why you think it's so fun and a great experience going out there? As it, as it relates to the deer, any take, anyone who takes one of these little coos whitetails with a bow, it's, it's an accomplishment of the highest degree. I, I don't care if you shoot a little spiker or if you shoot a really nice 4 by 4 to take any of those bucks with a bow is really, really an accomplishment. So for me, just that, the challenge it represents and the reward that will come if I'm ever successful in getting one, uh, that appeals to me. The weather appeals to me. Uh, you guys don't have quite the winter weather that we do here in the upper Midwest. Uh, the, just the different landscape and seeing so many things. It's, you're out there and you're glassing and you're like, what was that? And you look at it, you're like, oh, wow, that's a Halloween. Yeah, I got a tag for one of those too. Or, <laughs> oh, wow, that's one of those big antelope jackrabbits. Oh, great, I can shoot those too. And it's just <laughs> everything you see and you flush some quail and these Merton's quail and these Gamble quail, they fly about 50 yards and then they land. It's like, I got to run back to the truck and get my shotgun. <laughs> it's, it's like around every corner you never know what you're going to see it's all fun it's good eating the weather's beautiful uh, and it's it's uncomplicated let's put it that way it's not like you have to put in 10 months in advance and worry oh am I going to draw a tag or I'm not going to draw a tag you just go buy it over the counter and off you go and it's just a ton of fun I I don't know, I, I think part of in today's world, we put, maybe, I, I don't think we do it intentionally, but I think we put a lot of pressure on ourselves. 
themselves to either fill a tag or to fill a tag with a buck that's three and a half years old or older or an elk that has six points, whatever it might be. When you're archery hunting for coos deer, there's none of that pressure. It's just, I wonder if I can get within 200 yards before I spook them. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so I, and it's, it's something that is conducive to doing with multiple people where you maybe will have three guys or three gals, whatever, three hunters, and you'll take turns. All right, today I get the first stock. Well, all right, I blew my stock. All right, who's next in line? And, and so you're all kind of sitting on and off your glass and then you're talking, carrying on, having a good time. It's a very social deer hunt versus sitting in a tree stand where you don't say anything, you know, someone breaks a limb when they're hanging their bow, it's like, oh man, I might have scared every deer in the county. Mm-hmm. It's none of that. It's it's a very social experience. Um, and it, it's just low pressure. It's, it reminds me of back when I was a kid, right? I just hunted for fun. I mean, I didn't care. It was just, you know, smile on my face. I'm out, out in the woods. I'm hunting, and that's all I cared about. And so I kind of do the same thing with, with this hunt. And, and there are some people who get pretty serious about who's deer hunting, but I don't. And most of the people I know, when I, they get serious about trying to do it, but they don't judge the quality of the experience on what the end outcome is. And that's, that's refreshing to me. Yeah, and I think that's really big just because – you know, if you put too much stress on yourself of just harvesting that animal and just focus on that the whole time, you're not going to have a good time at all. I mean, you're not going to enjoy the small things during that hunt because, like, you know, when we were out in Wyoming, you know, at one time it got maybe a touch, not really stressful, but the reality set in uh, when our second to last day hit us that, you know, we might be going home empty-handed, and we kind of accepted that, that, you know, if that's going to happen, that's fine, but we had a great experience. We kind of know what we can get ourselves into. But if you kind of just harp on that the whole time and just that was all you were focusing on was making sure you harvest something, that's when you first of all start doing stuff stupid and either get in trouble for doing something illegal or something you shouldn't be doing. Second of all, it's something that it, you're not going to have a good time. And these smaller things like, Andrew, while we were glassing a, uh, glassing a you know, group of bucks, he actually gently uh, sat down on a cactus, and it was absolutely hilarious. <laughs> and it was like stuff like that where we could kind of like sit back and laugh for a second while we were glassing these bucks because how funny it was. And if you were so caught in the moment of just, oh, we got to kill a deer, we got to kill a deer, you would have brushed over that and not even thought about it and just you know kept going. Um, and stuff like that. I mean, that's that's one thing that we enjoyed so much about going out west is just the pure experience, and especially going with a buddy. I mean, absolutely. I mean, I love. I like hunting solo, but it's even more fun we go with a good buddy that's similar aspects as you. As you know, how hard they hunt. You know, someone that you'd be willing to spend, you know, five to seven days with at least on a hunt. And uh, I think it makes the time go by really fast and just really enjoyable, which I think is huge. Because again, the more the more fun you can have on that hunt, the more probably more reason uh, for coming back and doing it again, whether you're successful or not. Yeah, and uh, when I think about how my friends in the Midwest hunt, probably how you guys hunt. There are so many skills that you guys have about whitetail hunting that are so adaptable and so applicable to Western whitetail hunting, whether it's for the little coos deer down in Arizona or for, you know, Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, Colorado, Kansas, Nebraska whitetails. You guys have it dialed in better than us Western guys do. And you'd be surprised how much of that 
are meticulous about wind. Sometimes us Western guys were in such a hurry, we get sloppy about wind. Well, that that's when you kind of end up kicking the dirt with a long face when you get sloppy <laughs> with wind in it and you're hunting whitetails, right? You guys are way better at that. Your patience level is way higher than us Western guys. So I know guys who come out here and they have remarkable success just because they have a skill set that's conducive to whitetail hunting. Probably better than some of the Western guys are who are always on the move, on the move. All right, I'll catch up to them. I'll, I'll circle ahead of them and I'll catch them going through this little gap here or whatever. You know, the Western guys, a lot of it is visual. Uh, for you guys, the, the way you have to hunt, it's got to be very cerebral. It's, it's got to pay attention to so many factors because this deer, you know, you're trying to get this deer to come in within 25 yards of your tree stand. That's takes a lot of factors into consideration to make that work. Well, you come out west, and every bit of that, all of what you're doing is in your favor. That, that skill set uh, is, you, that's, the skill set of that person is way better than my skill set at having my tails, and somehow I managed to kill them. So. Yeah. Yeah, well... I mean, even, you know, you're talking about whitetail tactics, working for whitetails out west, but some of those same tactics really served us well in our pursuit of the mule deer that we were hunting out there. Uh, and just like Jacob said earlier, it's it's all about getting out there and really falling into a groove with, with what's going on out on the landscape. Is Those first two days, we're kind of fumbling around. We're not really sure what's going on, not sure how everything moves. And the longer you stay out there and just watch, and the more you understand it, the the better you'll be. And the, really, I mean, it was kind of the first real day that we spent farther back on the trail really glassing where we should have been glassing. We both killed within 30 minutes on that day, which was day four of the hunt. And it, it's just about getting out there and, and learning, man. I mean, that's, that's, that's all there is to it. It's not it's not rocket science going out there and doing it. It's not easy, but it's but it's not... It's not the super complicated thing that people might think it is. Yeah, and that, that's my point of bringing that up is if you have listeners from your part of the world who are like, well, I gotta wait until I find someone who knows how to hunt out there, nah, don't wait that long. Grab a buddy and head out there because odds are you guys have 95% of it covered. A little bit of map learning and knowing how to navigate. Uh, this crazy land ownership pattern and find the public land that's probably the other five percent yeah and you know if some of the listeners out there do want to get connected with with people who do these kind of things and people who probably have experience with it i'd highly highly suggest that you come to some backcountry hunters and anglers events around the southeast i was just at one just outside of chattanooga yesterday and the people you run into those things are just uh, I mean, they're they're just good, man. They're just good at what they do, and they they hunt hard, and they know what they're doing, and they're good people to be around to learn this kind of stuff. I've drawn a lot of knowledge off of my friends that I've met through BHA over the last two or three years, however long I've been involved with them. Yeah, and most of those folks are pretty open with sharing their information and their knowledge. Yeah, that's that's right. That's right. You got a lot of open books in BHA. <laughs> Yeah, and that's another thing is just, you know, again, our passion across the board, my aunt, you know, me, Andrew, and also yourself, Randy, uh, just 
you know, our passion for public land and, you know, doing it ourselves and not paying somebody to be able to just put us in there on some animals and really just doing it ourselves. And that's something that, you know, we all kind of have a passion for uh, is that DIY style of hunting, especially out West. And, you know, that's one cool thing about, uh, you know, BHA uh, is, you know, we're all, you know, advocates for public land and access for public land, which, you know, is something that, that we're trying to grow in the South. We're trying to grow that uh, knowledge and that uh, awareness in the South because no one really pays attention in public land in the South. You know, a lot of people have that stigma that, you know, public land is where you go if you're dirt poor and you have nothing else better to do and you're going to get shot out there in public land. I mean, that is legit what people think around here. And it's crazy because I, I, made, a, I made the decision this past year to go 100% hunting public land only, which I do have some private land access. But to me, honest, the public land hunting is better than my private land. Uh, I can get in spots that not a lot of people get to and have a lot better success hunting public land than I do on private farms. And that's one thing that a lot of people were trying to, you know, build that knowledge in the South is, you know, public land is a great opportunity for you to go hunting. And if you want to learn more about that and, you know, how to protect that and also just how to be connected with a great group of individuals who are probably like-minded as you that can really help you, you know, you can pick their minds apart when it comes to, you know, hunting out West too, because a lot of these guys have gone out West is to get, you know, appointed with and really get started with BHA, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. Uh, it's a great organization to really get started with to really help you meet a bunch of group of guys and really do something really positive, especially in this area of the country, but also across the country. And I know, Randy, you know, you're part of BHA and, you know, I think you've had a pretty good relationship with the organization so far. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you guys were at the one down there in Tennessee. Was Damon there? Yeah, yeah, I met Damon yesterday. He's a good guy to know, man. He's he was a very nice guy. The reason I bring that up is he's done two videos now out on the Orion Coolers YouTube page about public land, backcountry, whitetail hunts in Tennessee. He's opened my eyes. In fact, he's got a bunch of my audience from the West saying, "I gotta go back there and do that." He makes it look like a ton of fun, and he meant. He shows how doable it is and that the perception of public land is probably more a perception than a reality if you're you're willing to go and do it the way you guys do. Yeah, and funny story about that. You you said that Damon did those videos where he was hunting Tennessee backcountry, and he did one where he killed a a pretty good buck back there. And I watched that video sometime in December, and I was like, dude, I could do that like next week and so I did it and I went out there and I shot a buck and I told Damon that yesterday and he was thrilled <laughs> I was like thanks for the inspiration buddy <laughs> uh, well it, he does a really good job he's a very experienced hunter and his video content is very instructional and very helpful I, I watch it start to finish me too if you have people who are looking to see how to because some of the things that he's doing there are very similar to how we do things out west. You know, he's got his onyx. He's like, all right, where are the boundaries? Maybe I'm going to hunt this boundary area here because it's going to work better this way or that way or the wind or this way or that way or it's going to eliminate people because they don't want to walk that far. So a lot of those same things he's talking about in those videos are the same things that we do out west. I think people could get a lot of comfort with the challenges that they might think are out there in the West by just doing some of those things in their backyard or in their local area that have some public land. Yeah, and I've Randy, I've heard you talk before about how traveling and hunting in different places 
makes you a better hunter. And that, that's 100% true, man. It, traveling around, you know, with us going to Wyoming, I learned a lot of lessons in Wyoming that I was able to bring back to Alabama and institute here where I normally hunt and vice versa. And one of those being said is topography. Uh, you know, in the South, you know, our topography is much different than, you know, up out in the Rockies. Uh, even though there are places in the South like Tennessee, North Georgia, North Alabama, that, and also uh, North Carolina that has a bunch of this, you know, what I call, you know, smaller mountains, got the Appalachian mountain chain. And, you know, topography is huge down here. I mean, even if you're hunting at a place where, you know, the highest or the biggest change of elevation might be 100 feet, if that, if you can understand how to read topography and read a topo map, especially with the uh, overlay on Onyx, and that's huge for us, we use that all the time, to really figure out how these animals and these deer are really working these ridges and where you can set up, especially, you know, as a tree stand hunter, set up in locations that's really going to help your success go way up. Uh, and that's definitely helped us out in the past. And that's something that we took out of Wyoming was just understanding topography and how animals truly use benches and saddles and ridge tops and, you know, just how they move around terrain really helped us, you know, kind of look for the same things back here just on a much smaller scale. That's interesting to hear. I, I, that, that it would be that much of a, a I guess, as you said, a, a note-taking learning experience. I, I am lucky that I get to hunt so many different states and so many different places. I, I know that whatever it is, whether it's an elk in New Mexico or an elk in Montana, a mule deer in Nevada or a whitetail in Wyoming, I'm going to learn something because it's a new place new set of dynamics, maybe a different season type or different time of the year. And I'm a, I just go to it and say, all right, I'm going to make a bunch of mistakes. And I do. I, it, it's not like I try to make these mistakes on purpose, but it's part of the learning experience and not being afraid to experiment is when I learn the most. I Sometimes when I used to hunt just my same little spot in Montana, I never traveled anywhere. It was like, all right, I got this figured out. I did have it pretty well figured out, but I wasn't learning that much as when I started hunting a lot of different areas for a lot of different species. And I, back to your point, I do think it makes me a better hunter. I got a long ways to go, but it's, it's getting me to where I want to be someday hopefully from a skill set and knowledge standpoint. Yeah. Well, Randy, we've taken almost just under an hour and a half of your time here. So I guess to, to close us out, I got to ask, uh, what you got yeah. on, on the calendar for this fall? Uh, I'm looking at it right now, guys. We have this whiteboard. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> if you see it, it's crazy. We've got 22 tags listed on the whiteboard right now. Whoa. Oh my God, that's awesome. I'm so jealous. <laughs> yeah, uh, obviously living in Montana, I get my over-the-counter uh, elk guide in Montana. A good friend of mine drew Arizona elk. Uh, my son and my uncle drew Wyoming elk. And then myself and my uncle, we drew New Mexico elk. And then I drew a special mail deer tag in Montana. Um, I'm going to Alaska to hunt six blacktails. Uh, I'll be doing my Arizona archery uh, coos deer that we talked about. Uh, I drew an archery bison tag in Utah. Whoa. 19 years, I finally drew that. Uh, awesome. Let's see. That's got awesome. some bear hunts in Alaska. Uh, we got all kinds of stuff. Plus, this week we find out about, I 
Idaho moose and Nevada for all the species in Nevada. Uh, and then in a couple of weeks, we find out about Montana moose, goat, and sheep. So between me and my camera guys and some of our guest hunters, I just counted this morning, there's 22 tags on this whiteboard. I'm like, wow, we're going to be busy guys. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a good way to be busy, though. Yeah, I was going to say, that archery bison hunt sounds that is that is once in a lifetime hunt that is unbelievable like that I'm, sounds cool i'm man. so jealous right now that is the that is the coolest thing i've yet to yeah. hear this year on the uh, hunt i mean that is awesome I, uh, I, i've been lucky i drew a montana free range bison tag for out so that they migrate out of yellowstone park so i drew that and shot a really nice bull not huge but a nice one and the meat was fantastic and I've been applying in Utah for all of these years and this was the year that they let non-residents apply for uh, a couple archery tags and I thought hmm, as many points as I have I wonder how many other non-residents would want to waste their points on an archery hunt especially when the rifle hunts there the bull hunts you know the success rate's like 50%. Most people would think it'd be 100%, but it's not. It's a tough free-range hunt up at 11, 10 to 11,000 feet. So I don't know if I just lucked out or just not many non-residents decided they want to go archery bison hunting on the BLM lands of Utah, but that's what I'm going to be doing for 15 days in October. Oh, man. That is awesome. I can't wait to watch that, man. Yeah, that's that's going to be awesome content. I know that y'all bring to the table for that. Uh, on both the podcast and then also on on your show, uh, so that I'm excited to see where that's going to go for this year. Yeah, yeah, I, we've been. You know, you guys probably watch some of our day by day hunt stuff that we do out on our YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, uh, and uh, a lot of people are asking, and even the crew. You know, me and the crew were trying to plan out how are we going to do that. What if it takes all 15 days? Well. I guess it's going to take all 15 days and people are going to think we're milking them just trying to get more views out of them. But <laughs> I told the guy, look, if there's a bull standing there the first morning, I'm going to try to kill that one. It's, there's none of this, oh, well, let's kind of wait a while. No, it's, it's too rare of an opportunity. I, I want to get the most out of it, but I'm going to be down there scouting a few days early. So once season starts... If the opportunity is there, I'm going to try my best to get within range. Whether or not I will, I don't know. But I just, I think about, you know, going out on the public land with a sharp stick and a string, trying to get to 20, 25 yards of a 1,800-pound bull bison. And uh, that's, uh, I get pretty excited with a bull elk. I can't imagine how excited I'm going to be when I'm that close eyeball to eyeball with a great big bull bison. That that's incredible, dude. I can't wait to see that. That that's a that that for me is right up there with Kentucky bull elk. I'd love to hunt Kentucky bull elk. But man, I, I didn't I didn't draw in Kentucky. Did either of you guys? I watched the the uh, drawing. They had it live on the internet, and I didn't see him pull my name. <laughs> we I have a a good buddy of mine drew a antlerless uh, archery tag. So I'm gonna see if he'll let me be his little Sherpa for a week. <laughs> I was like, man, I'll carry your camp. I'll carry your elk. I just want to be out there. <laughs> uh, yeah, we're we're pretty lucky living here where we do that. 
we get over-the-counter deer tags and elk tags as residents of Montana. And then I, I always have some other things, some other states. I always apply for some easy tags because I, I want to go. And I, I, I don't need the best tag in the, in the state. I just give me a tag and I'll find a place to hunt. And off I'll go. So that's kind of the, the archery deer hunt in Arizona and like we talked about is a perfect example of that. I know I'm not gonna shoot a big deer. I know I'm probably not gonna fill the tag. And I go there with that expectation, but if ever I do fill a tag with my bow hunting those little things spot and stock, you guys will hear me yelling all the way down in Alabama. <laughs> I'll be, <laughs> I'll be dancing and jumping and screaming and yelling and then there's so many other similar places like that we talked about Wyoming right these white tail tags are so easy to draw there's usually leftovers you can usually get them as a second choice so you don't even burn your points if you what I always do is I apply for a really hard deer tag with points that I know that if I don't draw them I get another point and another point for each year and then my second choice is one of these leftover whitetail tags. Uh, Idaho has over-the-counter whitetail deer tags or, or over-the-counter deer tags. Colorado has over-the-counter elk tags. There's so many over-the-counter opportunities that don't require you know, millions of points. To, like the, You may have talked to your audience about how these western states have these really elaborate schemes concocted for how non-residents get allocated tags. Well, there's some states that don't do it that way, and I take advantage of those because I can't. Uh, I know I'm not going to draw a tag every year, so where else can I go? And I think one of the other things that you guys pointed out that you're going to be going back to Wyoming, and you're going to go back to Wyoming. Some of these states, you can count on going back year after year after year to the point where you almost end up knowing some of that ground, at least for how the animals operate in that week you're there. You know that area as well as some of the locals after enough time of going back there. And your success rates are just going to get better every year as you learn more and more and more. And I, I love having a few of those places in my, my list of hunts that I know I'm going to go back and I'm going to learn a little bit more. I'm going to learn a little bit more. There's, there's not a lot of chances that I get to do that, but I take advantage of it. And if, if I was traveling from somewhere, I'd probably pick some of those spots where I, I could consistently go back every year because every year I'm going to get a little bit better at it. Now, Randy, w- one thing that you said that really kind of, uh, you know, brought it home for me at least is, you know, you're trying to you're trying to draw some of these tags that are, you know, easier to get uh, so you can just have more opportunities to go hunt. And I think you've truly mastered that or come close to mastering that system to be able to get so many tags a year to go out there and hunt. Um, but one thing that really kind of helped us out this year, uh, we currently got uh, Go Hunt uh, their service, and I know you're affiliated with Go Hunt as well. Uh, this is the first year we've actually kind of used it, and I, it bl- it's blown me away. I mean, it's got me more excited about Western hunting than anything else because I was able to get on there, and I found in Arizona there's two units uh, that we could draw right now for a general te- or for a. Um, a limited entry uh, mule deer hunt, rifle hunt in November with 100% uh, draw odds with zero points and over 50% uh, success rate. 
And that absolutely blew my mind. And I'm like, I, ne- I didn't think I could hunt Arizona with a rifle with zero points. Yeah. Uh, I mean, th- so that blew me away. And I found other, we found other states with very similar uh, aspects. And I mean, that's the key. If you can find these places like that to hunt where, you know, it's, you know, very low, um, well, not very low, high uh, draw odds for putting in with one or zero to one points, then that's how you're going to be able to hunt year after year. Yeah, man, I love it, dude. This has been this has been a good episode. But Randy, I, I think we've taken enough of your time, and uh, I can't tell you how much we appreciate you coming on for this episode and talking through all these uh, different subjects with us. I'm glad to do it, guys. I appreciate that you continue to follow up with me. My calendar is such a mess, but I I'm a hard guy to get even via email. I'm hard to get a hold of, but. I'm I'm really excited to see what you guys are doing, and I I hope that you keep doing it. Uh, if I have any advice now, having done it for ten years, it's uh, don't listen to the naysayers. Uh, I was laughed out of the shot show when I first showed up with my idea. They're like, "What? Public land? Do it yourself? <laughs> Good luck with that, son." <laughs> so yeah. you're going to encounter people along the way who have supposedly the reason why you're going to fail or why it's not going to work, don't even listen to them. Just do what you love and keep doing it. And I love seeing younger people uh, doing this. I'm, I'm getting old and gray, and my biggest concern is to make sure that there are people coming along down the trail who are going to kind of carry the torch, for lack of a better term. And also, I want to make sure they have the same opportunities for all these great public land hunts that I've had. And uh, you guys seem like you're well on that path. So anything I can ever do to help, uh, please be persistent in trying to get a hold of me. And I'll, I'll find some time somewhere, somehow. And uh, I'll do what I can to help. Well, Randy, uh, I think that's, you know, we definitely thank you for, you know, those kind words. And, again, that is why we're here is just to try to get more, really just a younger audience involved with this. I mean, we're trying to get – you know, information out to everybody, really help them out in general, but really that younger generation to really get started and really get the, uh, almost like the addiction that we all have when it comes to hunting. And, uh, you know, this is a great opportunity for anybody to do a Western hunt like what we've talked about. But uh, again, Randy, we appreciate your time uh, being so generous with us. Uh, We'll definitely reach out to you uh, later this season for sure, maybe get you back on, talk about some of these hunts you've had. And again, I hope you have an excellent, great uh, summer for you with great scouting, and I hope your fall goes really well for you. Y'all go ahead and write down the dates, June 28th through June the 30th. Go ahead and just mark those off your calendar so you can be at the Dalton Convention Center in Dalton, Georgia for the 2024 Mobile Hunters Expo. Y'all heard a a ton of content from that expo last year that we posted. Uh, We talked about it a ton. Look, if you're the kind of person that listens to this podcast, this show was literally made for you. It was literally designed for you, which means you're going to love it. You know, all the best companies in mobile hunting are going to be there. A lot of the best deer killers in the Southeast are going to be there. A lot of our past podcast guests are going to be there. It's just, it's going to be an 
incredible event. And hey, if you've been looking to either get into a saddle or maybe a mobile lock-on setup or just a different kind of tree stand setup, I'm telling you it's worth the investment to go to this show because they're all going to be there and you you will get to try all of them in person before you buy it. So you don't have to order something online and then wait for it and then try it when it comes in to see if you really like it. You're going to get to go put your hands on everything all in one day, test it all out and figure out exactly what works best for you and have it taken care of before deer season starts. So like I said, go ahead and put it on your calendar, guys. It's a no brainer. You got to be at the show. Again, it's Friday, June 28th through Sunday, June 30th in Dalton, Georgia. We absolutely cannot wait to meet you guys there and talk hunting. So we'll see you at the 2024 Mobile Hunters Expo in Dalton, Georgia.